You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Several years ago, I spoke to Alex Crawford from Sky News. I asked her to come to Cape Town and talk to me about her experiences in Libya and other matters as well. She agreed to do so, and we had a fascinating afternoon and a fascinating interview. Here's this from the strictlybusinesspodcast.com archives. Let's go back to Libya now and the hat. It was a light moment. You had been, as you've just described, exposed to extraordinary danger. We haven't yet even spoken about your being holed up in a mosque and you, for once in your career, thought you were going to, you were going to die. We'll come to that later on. But then there was that hat, the chap coming out of the compound with one of Gaddafi's hats, one of his ceremonial headpieces that had been apparently used in some meeting with some dignitary from, from overseas. It was a comical but very poignant moment. Yeah, no, he was, well, for a start, he was really lovable. Mm. I mean, he was just instantly likable person and he, I just, he sort of came sort of walking rather jauntily up to me with his hat just looking quite extraordinary and no one even paying him any notice because there was so much going on you know people were running all over the place and jumping onto buildings and then they were using high caliber weapons to fire at the buildings even when people were on top of them just because everyone was going crazy and out of this all this smoke and chaos walks this uh, rather comical figure and just comes straight up and starts do you know did you know that's been turned into a rap song on youtube i'm sure it is the most hilarious <laughs> thing my daughter one of my daughters told me about it and there's just this constant oh my god oh my god i was in gaddafi's room <laughs> it is hilarious hilarious <laughs> but anyway, he got that. I mean, it's probably on eBay now. He's probably he said he, he said in the interview. I remember he's going to give it to his father. Yeah, and he also to... said he's never going to sell it or yeah. get rid because people were trying to try it on as he was leaving. Mm. And he and he just kept on taking it back. And I said, you really need to hold on to that. Yes. And he said, oh yes. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of memorabilia finding its way into all sorts of different collectors' hands at the moment. How was Libya compared to all the other experiences you've had? Was it the pinnacle of your career so far? Yeah, I. Someone asked me that um, the other day, and I was really thrown back by it because it's really hard to think of anything being a pinnacle. I mean, I, don't, I feel as though I've only just started. This is just a start of a, yeah. a, after, after more than 25 years of being a journalist. I feel like I've only just started. Not your skills, perhaps, then. Let's put it another way. In terms of history, will you look back and say, I was there when Gaddafi was ousted. I mean, it's going to take a long time, but the the first cracks really started to appear when you went into the compound and he wasn't there and everyone mm. realised he wasn't there and therefore he was impotent. Yeah, definitely felt like it was a, a page of history being turned, really, to coin mm. a, a phrase. I mean, that's the, the trouble with cliches is that they're often really true. Um, but I think... When we were going into Tripoli's Green Square and all these people were sort of flooding the streets, it definitely felt like a Berlin Wall-style moment. That's the, the only thing I can really liken it to because I remember that wall coming down in Berlin and thinking, whoa, and it changed everything. And it sort of felt like this was, this was the moment for Libya anyway. It was a real um, crashing moment. Yes, and you were heroes, of course, because as we have subsequently seen, the leaders of France and the United Kingdom, having visited Libya, are received as heroes. So you must have been revered by these people. That must have made it even more enjoyable for you. Well, 
I think they certainly was a, a quite high recognition of Sky News after um, because we were in uh, Zawiya, a little town that no one had ever heard of before um, this whole conflict began in Libya in March. And we happened to be the only journalists who got trapped in the town with um, the whole town. It was surrounded by um, tanks, 50 or so Gaddafi tanks, and they just kept on pounding and shelling the whole town. And after that, after we managed to get out and broadcast our material, um, I'm told it led to the imposition of the no-fly zone and certainly mm. certainly added a lot of weight to David Cameron and Nicolas Sarkozy's argument that there should be one. Because if you remember at the beginning, they were derided and laughed at, even by the, mili the various militaries for mm. thinking about trying to impose a no-fly zone. Um, and certainly uh, Sky News became quite uh, well-known as a result of that. So when I... Um, I mean, I remember I went to the, the first contact group, Libya contact group meeting in Doha, which was the first meeting with the new rebel uh, council, the National Transitional Council, meeting all the world leaders, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, William Hague, everyone was there. Um, and uh, the rebel leader came out. He was surrounded by people, absolutely surrounded by people who all wanted to talk to him. It was the first time they'd seen access to him because they'd flown them out of Benghazi. And I grab, ran, pushed my way through this group and grabbed hold of his arm and said, please, could you just give an interview for Sky News? And he just stopped in his tracks mm. and turned around and said, Sky News, you were in Zawir. Yes. Where, mm. Where's your camera? Yes, we, we like Sky News. And it wasn't, he didn't know who I was, had no, I'd never seen me or anything. He just knew that there was one crew, <laughs> television crew, which had managed to get those pictures out because people were so we were so they kept on saying you are so important to us you have got to be careful you have got to get out alive we need you and that was the constant refrain and even when we went back this last time before things started to turn their way there was a lot of uh, they they very highly thought of they thought the journalists were very precious commodities so you can say that libya the libyan experience probably the most satisfying definitely one of the most satisfying i mean it's now it's still so fresh Lindsay, as well i mean i'm still and you'll probably be back there quite there. soon yeah. yeah i hope so mm. <laughs> you've obviously overcome lots of things and you've been threatened with lots of things you've overcome prejudice um sexism you've been confronted with danger you've probably been confronted with violence over your career when was the moment when you really thought that your time was up well i think the, there've been there've been a couple of moments but definitely the most uh uh the most traumatic one was when we were stuck in zawiya it was very very traumatic how did it pan out? Um, well, we, we'd spent the day in Zawir on the Friday. We'd, gone, we'd just arrived in Libya the night before and um, sort of quickly tried to escape from the Rixos and ended up in Zawir somehow. I mean, we, we went there deliberately, but we had to go through many, many checkpoints to get there and uh, managed to get in and then filmed this large anti-Gaddafi protest with thousands and thousands of people, mostly unarmed, and filmed them walking towards the Gaddafi tanks, which were on the outskirts of the town. And then the uh, Gaddafi soldiers opened fire on them and kept on firing. And all these people were running and being shot in the back. And as they were trying to rescue people who had fallen, they would be shot at as their friends were trying to rescue them. And it was uh, just a massacre, basically. And we... Um, 
went back to the hospital where it was just filled with people with with uh, wounds varying degrees of uh, um severity but just absolutely filled with people and um we realized um it was too late our our taxi our drive had disappeared uh it was too late for us to get out so some uh, rebel soldiers turned up at the hospital they were the first rebel soldiers i'd seen up until then it'd all been civilians yeah. uh, and they it was only a handful of them they said we'll take you to somewhere safe tonight you stay with us tonight we'll get you out first thing tomorrow morning so they took us into the square with what i now know was their um, martyrs square and to they said they were taking us to a hotel in inverted commas it was their headquarters so we realized then that was probably not a very safe position but we had no alternative so we stayed with them in this empty hotel apart from uh, some rebel soldiers they'd set up positions around the square like barricades and that had they'd commandeered some tanks which they'd put on corners to try and block thing and we thought whoa this doesn't look good at all so we got up early the next morning um it was very late we slept on floors and and whatever got up had a couple of hours sleep got up next morning before dawn and as even before dawn had you know the sun had come up we could hear the tanks coming in and we could see these huge plumes of smokes as they, as they were firing on the way in and within well less than an hour they had, they were in the square um in in the meantime someone said let's let's rush you down let's get you down we decided we could, we were on the seventh floor and that was obviously uns, unsafe so they said let's go down to the basement so we went down to uh, ground level and people were just panicking just desperately trying to get uh, weapons together load up uh, rocket propelled grenades not knowing how to use them being shown how to use them um it was just chaos um uh, and someone said let's take you to the the mosque you'll be safer there so we headed off into the mosque and um it, it just got worse and worse you were under siege yeah i mean there were you tanks. couldn't get out uh, no one could get out uh, people were just uh, i i did i did um reports on the telephone because the telephone network was still operational at that point and um i was doing reports into london every half hour they could hear these huge um no the noise of shelling and rockets going off and machine gun fire all the time um but no everyone was trapped and they kept on asking me are they are they fighting back and i said well they just don't have any option you either fight or you die and that's what they would they were doing they were just trying to defend themselves so the phones were working did you phone your husband and say i'm sorry this could be it no i didn't i didn't phone anyone apart from um london uh, broadcasting because i didn't feel in control of myself enough to be able to talk to uh someone who's um i was very close to mm. uh, and i didn't feel i i thought my voice would betray um you know under any sort of scrutiny um mm. from someone who knew me well just how bad the situation was as it was it was quite hard doing the um reporting but i thought i thought i very much thought that if we were going to die that i wanted to make sure that everyone knew about what was going on because i thought they would deny it had happened and even whilst i was there they were denying that it was happening people talk about the arab spring it's now the arab autumn 
and it's going to go on for a long time. It's going to become the Arab winter, and then it'll go on for more years. And each country has its own different personality because of the different demographics and the different agendas within each country. Egypt is incredibly different to, to Libya, for example. But is it generally a good thing? And do you think that the region, when it ultimately does stabilize somewhat, it never will, not in my lifetime anyway, I don't think. But is it going to be a better place because of what's happened and what you've reported on? Hmm. Better. I mean, definitely, I think all the people in those different countries uh, desperately wanted some sort of freedom. And far too many of them felt repressed. Um, as you said, very different. So Tunisia, utterly different to Egypt. Egypt, again, utterly different to Bahrain. Bahrain, I think, has got a long way to go. It's nowhere near uh, having they've had they've had lots of trouble continuing to have lots of trouble that's in an entirely different category because they're clearly not succeeding in overturning uh, the regime and there's not enough international um, criticism about what's happening there for various political reasons the other countries Libya you see large-scale poverty generally in what should be a fairly rich country and again Egypt you know, large-scale too many people not benefiting from the country's natural resources. But Libya is almost easier to manage because of the giant size of, of Egypt. Yeah. Libya is almost, to me, the, the hope for the, the Arab world. Relatively small population, very rich potentially. Well, mm -hmm. it can be rich as long as the distribution of the wealth is managed properly. I think that could be a beacon of hope, which is why I really hope that Gaddafi and his family and his cronies get out of there quickly and there can be not a power struggle for power, but some kind of equanimous... A solution, the and then it the can problem, filter out from there. Yeah, I think definitely you've always got to latch on to hope. The problem is that um, because the regimes in all these countries has an absolute power for so many years, you know, a whole generation, there's a the the, the next generation is is may not be entirely prepared to take the mantles of power. I mean, you you can't, you know, democracies grows. It can't just be plonked there mm. and have it right this is the model this is how we do it do it it's got to it's 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 got to grow and develop and people's its whole way of thinking it's a way of you know people all these people have been brought up not to question for a start not to question just accept not to protest don't criticize you know, uh, I was asked a lot of questions about what I would uh, advise for the um, Libyan uh, media and uh, what, how we could help them and this sort of thing. I, said, I never met any Libyan journalists. There is no such thing as a free, independent Libyan journalist. So you could start, get a blank board and just start there. It's like South Africa, really. I suppose everyone says, well, 17, 18 years ago, people that had never had any legitimate way of participating in the economy or the direction of the country suddenly said, well, there you are. You can have this now. Get on with it. And we should, you should make a success of it straight away. It's mm. going to take generations. Mm. And presumably the same will be the case. Libya, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, uh, soon to be Syria, Yemen, everywhere else. Mm. I mean, the, the, they... Oh no! It's, it's, it sounds incredibly patronising, but they probably could do with um, help. I think, in all sorts of different ways, even if it's just. I mean, of course, the internet and once that's freed up, 
once they get access, uh, it's all, because the internet's been shut down for quite a long time in all these um, countries, most recently, uh, you know, maybe that'll that'll help because you've got a, you have got a young generation who's who's much more savvy in a lot of ways than the older generation. Mm. You know, they get on the internet, they watch, they learn, they, they read. A lot of them are schooled abroad. The problem will be persuading them to stay in their country. Persuading you to stay at home for a while is going to be a difficult thing for your friends and family. You want to get back to Libya, you will get back to Libya, I'm sure, and probably Syria and other places. Uh, you were going to be going off to... Kenya recently after the tragic events involving a British holidaying uh, couple. But where to now? Uh, by the time this is broadcast, you will have picked up your Emmy <laughs> well, in, no, in the United States of America, so. hopefully anyway. But where to next? What do you do? Where does Alex Crawford go apart from writing a, an incredibly <laughs> uh, um, exciting book? Um, I've no idea. Seriously, I don't know what I'm going to be doing this weekend. You can't ask me about a few weeks' time. Um, my life's been ruled by news events it, when it, if it quietens down which hasn't been the case for the past um year or so um there's so many stories i want to do in africa i want to learn so much about um this continent and i want to go to so many different countries here um and i can't wait to get stuck in and do some of those good well we look forward to following your work um in the future alex thanks so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to pop down to a community radio station <laughs> in cape town and we Later. hope to see you very soon that's alex crawford from sky news that podcast was proudly brought to you in association with sharenet.co.za visit strictlybusinesspodcast.com and subscribe to receive exclusive content straight to your inbox